Hello, welcome to Minding Your Mind, all about your mind, how it works, mental illness and mental health. With me is Professor Ian Hickey, psychiatrist and co-director of the Brain and Mind Centre at the University of Sydney. Today, we're talking about living with someone who has a mental illness. Might be someone in your family, might be your flatmate. What do you do? How can you help? Often those living with someone who have depression or anxiety have kind of thrown into the role of being almost a de facto therapist. They talk to the person about their problems, offer some advice, and then think, was that the right thing to say or not? I'm not really trained. So some advice, I guess, today for those who live with someone with a mental illness. Uh, Ian, we've talked a lot about those who lived with someone being in probably the best position to notice the early signs of mental illness. But today, what is their role when they are living with that person? I guess it depends firstly on the closeness of the relationship. A parent or partner is often going to want to try and do more perhaps than a a casual flatmate who just happens to be living with someone. James, it is one of the most important topics in the whole Mm. sort of mental health uh, well, well, like I said, mental health care is not really a care system because there is actually dual roles. You've just actually nailed it in the introduction. The really difficult thing of dual roles because firstly and primarily these are people in relationships. Yeah. And then secondly, there is this additional role that emerges potentially as a carer in the particular thing. And you've raised a third role, just to chuck it in, therapist. Yeah. As a very old uh, psychiatrist, psychotherapist once said to me, you know, forget antidepressants, Ian, just get a good partner. You know, the, all of us rely uh, extensively on those we are intimate with to provide mm. feedback about our normal behaviour and what is normally happening and, and provide key bits of information back to us in our normal day-to-day lives. So there's this kind of three roles, really, and the confusion of those roles and the responsibilities of those roles creates great pressure, great stress on often those people living with someone who has a significant illness, significant ongoing illness. Well, we've talked before, haven't we, how there is a ripple effect with people who live together and the mental health of one affects the mental health of others. Yes. And so there's a great deal of research into the stress, the pressure, the impacts of caring in general, but caring for people with a mental illness specifically. Yeah, yeah. And the challenges it face because – The lack of understanding, not knowing what to do, the lack of community support, the sense of becoming more isolated, the impact on the family, the relationship ongoing is big. Sure is. Um, So I thought we might talk about talking, what you can do with talking to the person, and then focus on behaviour, what you you can do because you're a behaviourist, what you can do to encourage... I got that for a while, yes. Yes, encourage the, you know, good behaviour from the person with the mental illness, and then finally probably talk about how how a person living with someone with a mental illness takes care of themselves and, and, you know, deals with the toll of that. And we'll probably focus a bit on the two most common mental health illnesses, anxiety and depression, but also talk a little bit about the other ones as well. So so talking, you're talking to someone with a mental illness, they're, they're going into depression or they're feeling very anxious. How do you not saying, no, you're not saying the wrong thing? What should you say? What shouldn't you say? And boy, do people worry about that. Yeah. Because what's the right thing or the wrong thing at certain times, depending on how the person actually is, and if a person's moving in and out of episodes of illness, of course, from the person who, who has an illness's point of view, does not want 
the whole relationship to become about I'm the person with the illness and you're the carer, <laughs> you know, constantly being judged, assessed, constantly having what they are saying or what they're doing evaluated simply through the lens of is this being distorted or changed or whatever by the person we're with. So one and, and yet at sometimes they can be desperate for help. You know, I'm in real pain here. You're there. You live with me. Help me. So the need for empathy, the need for understanding, genuine understanding is paramount. Mm. Yeah. Not being judged, you know. So just to try to get this kind of straight, what is really hard is, first of all, it's about the relationship and maintaining the relationship. So one of the really big issues just for intimate relationships is the extent to which intimate relationships fall apart as a consequence of one partner having a significant mental health problem. Mm. So so I think we should focus on that one and also focus on parent-child. Yeah, that's so these are the big two. So the big yeah. two that matter are the intimate partner, intimate adult partners, and parent-child. These are the two big ones I have to deal, I have to, I deal with every day of the week yeah. in my professional life, and they are the hardest. So the first one, you know, when people are in a relationship, they've got into the relationship, maintaining the relationship, so having the relationship function in normal ways. And so you can have normal arguments, you can have normal fights, you can have normal disputes, you can work out normal ways. Right. What's the relationship about? On, on What is the basis of the relationship and trying to maintain that? What, was, what attracted people in the first place? What keeps them together? And that not being distorted. So trying to maintain that. So one person doesn't become second order. The person with the illness always and may well feel devalued in that situation right. or they're always being judged or they've become dependent in a particular way. So there's, you know, there's always this kind of like how do people normally keep relationships together mm. in the particular things? So on the other side of the coin, you know, undoubtedly when people are in the situation where they're well aware that the behaviour or the emotionality or the stability of their partner has changed as a consequence yes. of uh, an illness or an illness episode, it does put huge pressure on the relationship and they are in the unique position to comment, <laughs> to comment genuinely and to provide uh, not just support but also key partnership in dealing, for example, in dealing with the healthcare system or dealing with the people outside or having to modify things when, you know, it's hard to cope or Mm. do need to make allowances or do need to change things, can't necessarily do things in the same way at this point that would normally kind of happen. But, But this is the key thing. When you are in that situation and, okay, the person is going having a very, very bad day and they really, you know, want to reach out to their partner, their parent, whoever it is, this is the bit where the pressure's on because what do you say and what don't you say? So so let's look at depression and anxiety. Firstly, depression. If someone's deeply depressed, the instinctive thing to say, like if you were feeling pessimistic, I'd say, yeah, and you've got a good life and things are going well. Come on, think of some good things. But But when you veer into mental illness and depression, you know, that might be the instinctive thing to say, but is that the right thing to say or not? No. No, right. <laughs> no. That's the tricky bit. What? So what do you well, say? Well, I'm not sure it's the right thing to say normally, but it's certainly not the right thing to say in this situation. Right. So you said something interesting about me, that I'm a behaviourist. I care more what you do than what you say. Yeah. So how do you demonstrate empathy, understanding for the situation the person's in? I mean, the person most requires someone and the people they're closest to to understand what's going on, to appreciate the variation mm. that's going on to appreciate the change, to appreciate the difference between what they're normally like when they're well and that at this point they may be unwell 
At this point, it may be distorted by what is actually happening. And to understand that, so not to come out with glib, now come on, it's a good life, let's all get it together. But much, much more, what can we do in that situation that would be productive? Now, what's to be done will vary. Sometimes it is to withdraw from the world, to not just carry on and pretend there's nothing going on because the person's not really able to do their best at that moment. It's Mm. to support them to actually take time out, not do the particular things, withdraw from something. So not to say, you know, all the experts say if you get out and go for a walk in the sun, you'll feel better, to say... Okay, look. If you if you feel you just need to lie in bed today, then then I'm 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 with you. I'm with you, right? I'm with you because sometimes. But then, but then you know, in now, other episodes, yep. we've said, <laughs> you know, try and try and get out into the sun, go for a walk. So where's that line right. between encouragement? Well, here's and, the difference yeah. between general advice, yeah, yeah. and the specific. Because the other side of the coin is exactly what you just said, <laughs> which is on at other times and in, and and a more general and ongoing situation, despite the problems, staying engaged with the world, staying engaged in the relationship, staying engaged with the world, uh, continuing to, you know, best as possible to work, to be physically active, to be socially engaged is important. So support someone to do that to the extent that they can do it at that particular time. Yeah. You know. So so that's kind of a judgment call that's pretty tricky. Like sometimes you think – and and. You very think, tricky, not pretty tricky. Yeah. Very tricky. But but is it similar to, I don't know, you know, a five year old who's nervous about going to a first ballet class? And there's a really fine line as a parent between, come on, you can do it, maybe a little bit of bribery or buy you an ice cream after, and recognizing it's too much for today. Let's bail, let's go home. And and sometimes you get it right as a parent, sometimes you get it wrong, you think we should have bailed there, she was really upset. Or sometimes you think I should have pushed her a bit harder. Is it a bit like that? So for the very much for what we're just talking about is intimate relationships because, you know, it's really important for the person that illness is not devalued or or doesn't lose their own autonomy in this. Yeah, yeah. You know, it doesn't become so. This judgment call you're alluding to, and you know, at times you're going to get it wrong. Yeah. You know, but I think the motivation behind it is perhaps the more important thing. You know, trying to work with you both, trying to work with it. To take a so sometimes it's going to fall on the side of well, we perhaps we withdrew too much. Other times perhaps we did too much. You know we went too far. We did just trying to ignore it and carrying on. And yeah. you see this when often you know when people are changing medication or it's a difficult period or they said well known that you know this is a tougher period, changing the seasons, all sorts of things that happen. Yeah. You know, sort of coming to understand the ebbs and flows of the impact of illness mm. in this specific person. And, and being responsive to that. So the, the really hard thing is how do you maintain, maintain an, an engagement with a relationship and the kind of empathy despite the kind of variations actually well, in behaviour talk- and comment that's required? So when you're talking about variations, what I think you mean is is there will be some days, say when someone's suffering from reasonably severe depression, they just want to talk to you and, and they don't want to talk to you and they're not enjoying the world and, and you're – the person closest so they won't be being very nice to you or very responsive or fine, yeah, go away, you know, that sort of stuff. That's tough because even even you think, okay, today's not the day to talk or, or today's the day to think, okay, I'm here if you need me, but, you know, I can see you don't want to really talk and, yeah. Exactly. And in all relationships, we have our own needs. Yeah. Oh, hang on a second. I'd really like to talk today. 
I'd really like to have sex today. I'd really like to go and visit my relatives today. I'd really like to go and do something physically active today. But That's the other a pretty person... busy day. You're doing a lot. <laughs> well, no, no, there's no day. Today's the day. You know, living in the present. Relatives, <laughs> in the present. Sex, Sun, sun's fine. The sun's finally come out today. You know, so that normal clash, you know, or normal differences in yeah. particular things, having to take account uh, of the other person's actual capacity and this leads to a lot of judgments and misjudgments, you know, at times as to what the person's motivation is and frustration. So the frustration on behalf of uh, people living in intimate relationships, mm. you know, is very high, which obviously then sits behind why many relationships break up. Now, it becomes important, therefore, for the person in this situation, this is true for parents in other examples, to have as much actual real information. You said something really important because we make general comments here all the time. Yeah. <laughs> you know, be active, do this, blah, 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 blah. Have we sex can't. and visit your relatives. <laughs> <laughs> They're sort of general statements yeah. of principle, you know, but the nuance here, this is a nuanced situation. Get, so you need information. By, by the way, one after, not at the same time. <laughs> have sex, then visit your relatives. Sorry, go on. Could be interesting, yes. Yeah. Um, the nuance of the situation of, having enough information about the illness, this person's particular illness and difficulties. So the sharing of information about the nature of the ways and what really works and what really doesn't work for this person, where their illness is really going, getting involved in actually what is actually happening therapeutically, knowing what's going on. So that then you're in the best situation that you're sharing information that's genuine and real and absolutely relevant to this particular person at this stage of life and clarifying that, you know. So as best as possible, you can clarify what's kind of illness-specific <laughs> versus what's just relationships in general. Mm. So it takes a lot of work. There's a lot yeah. more. For those who aren't working at their relationships most of the time, this takes a lot of effort. Yeah, yeah. And a lot of understanding and a lot of empathy. And I must say, both ways, for people who have illnesses who are in relationships and, and for people who the other partner, you do see sometimes the most I see in my professional life the most amazing caring and empathic and human responses to the challenge. Yeah. You know, it ain't all bad. <laughs> That's what I'm right. trying to say. You know, some relationships are really deep and really persistent. And people's understanding of each other goes up, not down, despite yeah. the fact it's incredibly challenging at times. What about, let me give you a specific one about depression before we move on to anxiety. People with depression sometimes say, I don't want to be here anymore. Now, that's a long way from planning suicide, right? That's not call an ambulance necessarily, we've got an emergency. That's more like I just, at this moment, wish that I wasn't conscious. So how do you deal with that and how do you work out well, we've done a whole episode on suicidal ideation, so we don't need to get into that. But just how do you deal with that specific one? I don't want to be here anymore. Right. So really important to understand, first off, something I think I have said in other episodes, most people who are significantly depressed will have thoughts like that. Yeah. Because it's, it's, it's at the heart of the experience. Life has lost its pleasure. Like, mm. what is the point? Okay. So the first thing is not to panic in the face of that. Okay, that is part of it. And to understand, for most people, that's an essential part of the experience. Right. So, so that's, that's okay. To an extent, no. So yeah, to the extent. So don't, for the first time you hear that or first time you understand that, and then the extent to which 
this is where actually talking does matter. I was, I was sort of dishing talking there earlier on. But being able to talk about that, that that's an essential part of the experience. So, so what, just do you mean? Of, what, what would the question be if someone says Not the question. Well, it's, it's a sort of knowing and sharing the fact. So I'll often say, I must say, as a psychiatrist in my professional thing, when I'm seeing couples and or seeing people, I'll often, I'll often come right out and say that. Look, I know it's an essential part of the experience. Rather than say, are you oh, okay. suicidal? Are you going to kill yourself? I'll right. just come out and say, look, I know it's an essential part of the experience that at times you're going to feel it's just not worth being here. And people say, oh, thank God. I'm so glad you said that because <laughs> right. I didn't want to say it in case, you know, somebody calls the police, takes calls an ambulance, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But, but if someone says that, you know, I don't want to be here anymore, then they're saying it for a reason. You know, they've been thinking it, but they say, I want to say that to someone. So they want they some want sort to, of a response. They want to be able to talk about it. Yeah. They want, it's a terrible feeling, right, you know, but they want to be able to talk about so it. So what, 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 what would be the response? Would it be, well, why do you feel like that? No. You no. are not allowed to ask the why question. Really? Okay. How long have we been doing these episodes, <laughs> I'm not allowed to ask the why question. Why not? No, I just asked it. <laughs> like, what, what's bad about the why Well, it's why the inquiry question? thing in the sense that it has to have then a kind of explanation. There has to be a reason, you know. Did you fight with the boss yesterday? Oh, you know, so the answer is, I don't know. I just feel that way, really. The answer is, I don't know. Why. The answer is, it's an essential part of the illness experience. Okay. But then, so what do you say? If you don't say, why do you feel like that? What, what do you say? Oh, that must be horrible. Tell me more about it. Got it. Okay. Geez, you're a good therapist. You are such a good therapist, <laughs> Well, I got it wrong really. the first time. <laughs> Second time, I was okay. Yeah. It must, it must be empathy. It must be really horrible to be feeling like that a lot of the time. Right, right. Must be terrible. Yeah. You know, and then the, the communication either verbally or and now you often say this. <laughs> what should I say? I'm going to say, what should you do? Often the more non-verbal thing is to hug the person, is to be with the person, yeah. is to take their hand and go for a walk with the thing. Isn't actually necessarily to get into a verbal. Now, what what really good partners can do, and what therapists should not do, <laughs> is okay. get into the physicality of it. Oh, right? of course, yes is that the intimate partners can do stuff. They can hug, they can hold, they can walk with, they can yeah. spend time with without having to explain, without having to speak, yeah. but just to be with the person. Yeah. If you ever read The House of God, most famous book about you know, young yeah, doctors, yeah, yeah. it's got the whole thing about the key issue for a psychiatrist, and this is a therapist thing, is the being with. It's the actual being with, being there through the pain, through the suffering, through the difficult period and still being there. Yeah. That's what intimate partners can do. That's what families do, carers do all the time. They don't have to have the answers. They don't have to get it right. They just have to be there. They just have to be there in an empathic way. Now, often this is very frustrating. Well, because sometimes people uh, feel so cut off when they're mentally ill that they, they, no, don't touch me. Exactly. So there you are trying to be empathic, trying to hold her and go, don't touch me, leave me alone. I want to be on my own. I just really, as we've discussed before, when being depressed in particular, shutting down, withdrawing. So the being there may not be able to be in the way that you would, the way I was just describing, but it it actually still does mean being there. Right. (laughs) In the house, in the relationship. Yes. And you've got to be available there. Yes. You've got to be there. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. For the rewards that come. Now, we've discussed before, often people with anxiety and depression are really sensitive people. I really like, I really, I feel really privileged in my career to spend a lot of time with people who are anxious and depressed. They're really interesting, caring, sensitive people. They have insights yeah. into the world. They have an appreciation of the world that I find missing <laughs> in a lot yeah. of other, you know, more superficial interactions with people in, you know, everyday life. You know, so the, what the upside and this is one of the issues for people in relationships, trying to hang on to the upside. What is it about this relationship? What is it about this person? 
yeah, that actually I really value. Yeah. Even at this moment, if I'm totally frustrated and, and the frustration issue, you, you just raised a really important thing. So the people who are really good at it, they do want to go and hug the person or do something or engage, take their hand, go for a walk, and the person goes, nah. Yeah. <laughs> nah, leave me alone. Yeah. Don't, not, not doing it today, just not, you know. Or, but the, but the challenge is to turn up again tomorrow. And yes. Again tomorrow. Yeah, or... Or an hour later. Yeah, or the person's really angry. or you know, People aren't always withdrawn. Sometimes people are angry or they're irritable mm. or whatever. It's to still be there. You know, so sometimes it's sort of just living with the, the what seem, can seem like the rejection, living with the frustration, living mm. with the kind of – living with the fear also. You raised an important issue, which is this, this the fear of what might go wrong so that that business of not wanting to be here might translate into self-harm at mm. some point and, and translates into threat at some time. Or, That's or, very hard to live with. Or that the illness might just keep going for years. That's a scary one too. Where does it end? Mm. What can you live with? And so trying to weigh up one's own needs, being, you know – some of us can be supportive for whatever, you know, the Medicare hour or 45 minutes or half an hour or whatever else, right. you know. <laughs> it's very hard <laughs> to be – there all the time. It's yeah. very hard to be supportive. Yeah. In fact, as many families say to me or, or intimate partners say to me, it's fine, great, Ian. We saw you for 45 minutes for six, once every six weeks. Yeah. What about the rest of the time? You know, yeah, who's doing right. the job? Yeah. Actually, many families and carers say this. Who's doing the job 24-7? Us. Yeah. You know, who's providing the support? Who's actually making sure that the person stays connected to the world and in meaningful ways, yeah. not in diminished ways, but in meaningful ways. And so family and carers in that particular situation are a lot. So so we've talked about depression a bit. Let me ask you a couple of specific questions about anxiety. We've talked uh, in our episode on anxiety and in several episodes about the anxiety reassurance kind of feedback loop, I'm worried. I uh, I'm worried. I um, might have cancer. Go to the doctor, get reassurance. Don't have cancer. Good, but now I'm worried. I might have a mystery virus. Go to the doctor. You, your brain sets up this loop where it becomes dependent on reassurance, and that is actually ultimately unhelpful to to curing yourself of anxiety, anxious reassurance, anxious reassurance. So you're living with someone who's got anxiety. They desperately want reassurance about something. I'm going to get in trouble because I said something uh, bad to someone at work. I'm going to get in trouble because I was uh, nasty to my teacher. Uh, and and you know that this is a pattern that's been repeated many times. Do you reassure them and try and almost put a balm on their immediate discomfort or do you think a bit more long-term and think, I'm not going to get into that because ultimately that's that's not helpful to you sorting out your anxiety? The latter. Right. There used to be great books. There used to be great manuals, spouse-aided therapy. Now, for anxiety in particular, mm. your chance to be the effective behavioural therapist here is high. Yeah. <laughs> and I say this in intimate relationships and also the parenting one you alluded to earlier on. So getting informed about exactly that because the impulse is to be reassuring, to relieve distress. Yeah, that's right. Constantly. Makes it worse. Yeah, that's Makes tough, it worse. isn't it? That's Makes really it worse because, you know, here I was going on a minute ago about empathy, right? You know, the person you really care about is distressed, is seeking reassurance. The natural response, if you're human at all, is to provide it. And here am I going, mm, no. Nah. <laughs> you know, actually. It's, it's almost like an addict, isn't it? Just, just, you know, I just need a hit and then I'll be fine. 
Can you just go and score something for me? I'll be fine then. And, and you know, they're getting more and more agitated. It's almost like that, right? And if you are the intimate person and whatever else and you don't respond, right? They get angry at you. You're in trouble. Yeah. yeah. If you don't have – now, then what you need here is a prior agreement. You actually need a prior agreement, okay? Coming back to this, why I really like these manuals that used to exist about spouse-aided therapies. Yeah, right. Was for the therapist – Sets it all need, out, eh? To say, now, look, your partner now for the 24-7 – when you're there and the, I'm not there, here's what's going to happen. The person's not going to provide reassurance. Mm. They're going to provide, they're going to assist you to do the behavioural interventions that will lead to reduction in the problem. But it'll make it worse first because but you won't be the, getting in reassurance. Meantime, in the meantime, you, you may it's well feel spike worse. It's going to spike your anxiety. Yeah. So another, wow. another great piece of research from the 1970s, which I genuinely loved, was about marital therapy for anxiety and depression. And when it really worked, it made the relationship worse to start with. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> because, because exactly this pain. reason, instead of the person just being reassuring and, and it's a nice, warm person who always reassures me, but the behaviour continues or gets worse, the person actually does stuff to actually assist me to get over the problem. Yeah. But in the short term, it's distressing, it puts pressure on the relationship, and it seems harsh. It seems yeah. difficult. Now, you, see, you raised my favourite topic. What's your approach to parenting at the moment, James? So you see this with kids a lot because anxiety and kids, remember, so that we talk about yeah. relationships. The anxiety one's probably a particularly good example with kids, parents and kids. You know that parents play a key role. I don't want to go to the party. With a, yeah, I'm anxious shy. Yeah, I can't do that. Can't go out. Can't do this. Can't go to school. Can't stop doing this particular behaviour. You know, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, parents actually having to take a parenting role, not a support. Oh, okay, you're distressed. Okay, it's fine. Don't go to school. Yeah, avoid that. That's fine. Yeah, yeah. Because, yes, because you are very distressed. I can see that. Yeah. You know, um, and reinforcing that through where support appears to be what you would normally do, but it actually, as you quite correctly pointed out, increases the frequency of the behaviour, reinforces the behaviour yeah. as the best way to cope when it's not the best way to cope. So in those situations – Intimate relationships, parents have to be very careful that their behaviour doesn't perpetuate the problem. So, so this is interesting because with depression, you were saying if you're living with someone with depression, almost the most important thing is empathy, like try and understand them, be there for them. Whereas with anxiety, yes, of course there is empathy, but it's actually a bit, you know, a, a bit hard-assed anxiety, hard-assed empathy because you're not just, you know, with depression they say, I want this. Sure, I'll get you a hot water bottle. I'll get you a hot ch- chocolate. With anxiety, it's I want reassurance. No. Got it. Mm. So if you're involved in this sort of behavioural approach that I'm talking about, it can seem harsh, yeah. right? So how do you both – It's going to help. But how do you be both empathic <laughs> and do it? Now, the thing is families and intimates can do that, right? The odd behaviour therapist like myself can seem very harsh and very unempathic, <laughs> <laughs> you know, just but that's for your own good. That's for your own good. I know it's going to hurt, but it's good. You know, it can seem very uh, uncaring. Those people who are fundamentally known to be caring, person you're in an intimate relationship with, parents. I mean, fundamentally, where each party knows that they are caring, and this is where I think sort of endorsement of the behaviour by professionals is really yeah. important. The person is not being uncaring by doing this. They're actually being caring. You raised an interesting thing. I've, I've, in my life, had to deal with uh, families who are dealing with people who are drug addicted and whatever else and had to make really tough decisions 
in those situations and reassure them a lot that they are, this is the caring option. You know, actually trying to break the behaviour and break yeah. the particular thing is the caring option. Well, I used to see a lot of them in uh, when I was a criminal lawyer. Uh, in the courts. You know, if you there's bet. someone who can bail you out, you just need a, someone to sign $100. Uh, no, nope, my, my mum won't. She right. did last time. She's not going to this Well, she's time. done the other previous 15 times. Yeah, exactly. Right? And actually she's drawn a line and yeah. created whatever, you know, and got back to- I think when I took a video, I think when I hocked a video uh, recorder, that could have been a turning point. Yeah. When I stole a car and sold it. Yeah. <laughs> you know- Turning point. What's she, what's she talking about? <laughs> you know? Yeah. And interestingly, it's so hard- for people to draw that line at times. So, so just come back to the anxiety. Um, drug addiction is a, a more extreme example. But the anxiety thing, therefore, and therefore being confident that what you're doing is the appropriate thing to do while remaining caring. Yeah. There is this terrible term of um, you do not want to impart affectionless control. <laughs> you don't want to take some pleasure in being controlling and stuff. Yeah, right. <laughs> and you know, appear to you know, somewhat more... You know, masochistic. So you try and of, remind them why we're do, what we're doing. And I'm not going to reassure you, because remember where we spoke to the therapist, and remember we know that whilst it will make things worse for a little while, and I'm really sorry about that, it's going to make things better. That's why I'm doing it. Now that was very good, James. You're allowed to use words in this occasion to yes to remind. It's not that I'm harsh and caring and just mm. frustrated with a particular thing and just saying no. I'm actually trying to stick with what we've agreed is a behavioural approach that will help in this particular situation. Yeah. And the moving on, not getting stuck in those in those loops you were talking about earlier on, not repeating the behaviour, getting to school if it's a particular you know avoidance situation, stopping repeating the same behaviour 15 times, you know, if that's the problem or whatever the particular problem is, mm. trying to stop the behavioural consequences of it. Yeah. And as we've discussed many times, if you can stop the behaviour, often the thought stops. You know, when you stop doing yeah, the thing, right. yeah. you stop the cognitive loop that's running around. Yeah, so OCD is an example of that. Yeah. Con continuously washing your hands. If you can actually intervene and and try oh, – that's a tricky one too. You've talked about how in therapy, therapists can get patients permission. If you try and wash your hands during this session, uh, do you give me permission to to try and stop you, to stand between you and the basin? And, and yes, who I can do, do that best? Yeah, so you Family, ask, carers. Really? So you yeah. ask your partner for yeah. that? Yeah. Can you I bet. stop you? Yep. Whew. Okay. Yeah. Now this is, yeah, yeah. So this is a really interesting kind of situation because you want to make sure you know what you're doing. You want to make sure you've got permission, as you said, that there's an agreement to actually go down this path. Okay. You wouldn't want to be going down this path without a prior agreement. <laughs> That's right. So you need a prior agreement and also I and guess a focus, you need- Because you're not controlling the person's whole life. Yeah. It might this be is one aspect. It might be checking the front door fifteen times before we go out. We're going to agree we're not going to check the door fifteen times the lock before we go out. And and you also have to be very careful that if there is some physical intervention, if the person gets really agitated and it feels like that physical contact is escalating, at some point you just got to get out of the way. Totally. Like you don't want to be totally. fighting with them. Nope. Yeah. Now that's a. Ooh. To take it to a more extreme example, yes. So there are some situations where people become very agitated in the face of that. Then, yeah. Now, but that's like all uh, therapies. Yeah. We're, we're bad days. doesn't work. Yeah. You know, so, yeah. okay. We'll, we'll try again tomorrow. We tried. Didn't work today. You know, we're not going to escalate the situation into further disputation yeah. about the particular problem. Yeah. We'll try again tomorrow. Yeah. Let, let me ask you a specific thing about parents. Flatmates and siblings who live with someone with a mental illness, you know, understand – 
probably better that there are limits as to what they can do, whereas parents have kind of grown up, you know, for a lot of teenagers have, have mental illness. Parents have grown up being in charge of their two-year-old and being to an extent in charge of their seven-year-old. And when their child is debilitated, if they're 16, 17, whatever, by mental illness, there is a temptation probably in parents to kind of reinstate that command role, I'm in charge here, which, you know, and possibly not be as aware, ironically, as to where they have to just say, we're having a bad day here, Let's, let's back off. Because they're the parent, you know, this is, come on, we need to get outside and go for a walk because you've got depression. Let's go. So word for parents on, on, on that line. I'll go and pick an easy one, James. Yeah. Parenting teenagers with emerging mental health problems, right? Yeah. <laughs> right up there yeah. on the really hard scale. We've dealt with the, I would say, almost the two simple ones, <laughs> you know, the intimate relationships yes. one because you've sort of chosen. Parenting of young children, pretty clear, stay in the parenting role. and you know, Parenting teenagers, and of course it's, terribly relevant you raise that because the peak age of onset of mental health problems is teenagers. So you've got these emergence of identity issues, independence kind of issues, and yet many parents find it's absolutely necessary that they are engaged. And the young people in those situations need their parents to be engaged. Mm. So first of all, stack a negotiation. My office is filled many days with parents and teenagers and others. Right. So I must say from a therapeutic point of view and contrary to some of the practices of my colleagues, first off in my office is all in. If, the, if a teenager turns up in my office and their parents are outside, I start with the all in. Let's start with everybody in. Let's make the assumption everyone's got a stake in this. Yeah. Not although the role of the person who's got the problem, the young person themselves, of course, is to some degree the primary concern. Mm. Everyone needs everyone. And there are issues that will be different. I, emerging identity, choices to be made, you know, in those particular situations. So it takes a lot of work and at it. To get, it, to get it right. But both sides, I'd be saying to teenagers all the time, look, I know you've got identity issues, I know you want to run your whole world, but for God's sake, this is a time of your life, if you've got supportive parents, this yeah. is a major asset. You really need their help. This is complicated. And in saying to the parents, <clears throat> um, this is hard. <laughs> if you didn't know this already, parenting teenagers uh, has its challenges. It just got harder. It just got harder. It just got harder, but, but. Despite the slings and arrows, you know, your kid really needs you. In fact, your kid really needs you at this point in a number of these kind of roles, you know, um, to get through these sort of tough times of respecting their emerging identity, their emerging independence, but also helping them to navigate these kind of systems, come to terms with these kind of areas that they never really had to come to terms to before. Yeah. So often there's a massive learning. You said a really important thing along the line I don't want to miss, which is about siblings, brothers, sisters, mm-hmm. etc. A lot of times they get excluded. Right? And you'll see parents with the kid with the problem, but there are other siblings, they may be teenagers in the teenage situation or younger children, but particularly teenagers who get left out. No one explains what's going on. You know, They know that there's chaos going on or there's real trouble going on and no one really explains. There's no real open discussion of what the nature of the problem is and what might be the reasonable sets of things that it impacts on. Mm. You know, How as a family or as a group are we going to adapt to this? So a lot of siblings in this situation feel really left out, feel really abandoned, don't have really good information, don't get support. In case we get to the end of the episode without actually saying one of the most important things, many of the carers, whether intimate partners, family members, siblings, need their own support external to all of this. Yeah. So actually providing professional support, but but uh, peer group support, support 
of groups of people mm. who are brothers and sisters of people who are living with a relative with a mental illness. They are children of, they're parents of. The peer support groups, the common interest groups, you know, supporting each other and taking time out. These are all kind of important things. Maintaining the mental health and well-being of carers and family members in these situations is really important. Not pretending I can just tough it out. You know, I'm fine. I'll be fine. <laughs> Actually, you know what? It can be really hard. And the support on, and, and recommendations and advice from people who've been through the same situation, who've lived through the same situation, it's often incredibly important. That's a good one, actually, isn't it, to, to kind of reach out to people who you might know. Like maybe you just heard, you know, I think their kid had had, had a problem. And just to reach out and say, you know, is, is this – I don't want to intrude, but, you know, we're going through something now. Have you got any really advice? Really hard. Or, yeah. One of the things I really love, sometimes in professional career you see something you think, why doesn't everyone do that? In uh, Origin Youth Health in Melbourne run by Pat McGorry and his colleagues, the, the centre they set up, often the first person you would meet when you were a parent coming in with a young person in a major crisis was a parent. Mm. There was a mum. There was a mum at the door <laughs> to welcome in <laughs> – the mar- yeah, usually the parents with a really disturbed kid. Yeah, right. That was the most marvellous thing. Right off, mm. there was an emphasis on supporting the parents who were actually negotiating yeah. the entry of their adolescent or teenage or young person into the mental health system mm. with just overt recognition that they would be some of the most important people and just how hard and how difficult that might be. If you've never been in that situation before, you've never had to face that, you're really unfamiliar with how this could go, to meet someone who's in the same situation. So, so that is, that's an interesting dilemma for parents, actually, because parents are often very mindful that they don't want to spread around that their, you know, teenager has a mental illness. They respect the fact that, you know, they, they don't want the kid to be labelled that way by their wider group. But I know someone who, who when their kid had a, 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 a mental illness, they just thought about who's the person I know in the world who's the most connected person. You know those people who are really connected, heat beads, whatever they're called. They just know everyone. And so they rang her up and said, this is what's happened. Don't tell anyone, but who do you know I can talk to? And she was like, oh, I know three people. You know, people tell me everything. And suddenly they were connected to three people who could, you know, provide some feedback to them. Yes, we did work once with hairdressers. Right. You know, people tell right, their hairdressers, yes. they know everybody. <laughs> oh, I've got six other people. In fact, if you're in here on Tuesday, we've got, you know, all yeah. the mums of all the people who are, you know. So that, that, which is one of the problems we've had socially. I mean, we do this, we see other people who are living with families with, you know, members with disability or members with other particular problems. We immediately understand that they that the carers are going to need support themselves. Yeah. And one of that is just understanding from people who are in the same situation, you know, who suddenly have to negotiate all sorts of things the rest of us are unfamiliar with. Mm. And people who've been through there and can provide, you know, real-world advice yeah, because they've they've been in that situation are just so invaluable in those areas. So there are associations uh, for uh, parents, for carers, for intimate partners, for, as I say, brothers and sisters, siblings of those. And so those organisations and contact with people and people just, whether they're professional associations or just people in your local neighbourhood, your local network, really good idea. Mm. Don't be alone. You know, it's frustrating. It's difficult. There are challenges. And sharing that with people who've been through similar – and they are unusual situations. You know, they're mm. not just on the street. People are going to know what to do. Yeah. I had an anonymous interaction with someone in a, a cab in Adelaide. guy picked me up and I was just chatting to him and he just unburdened himself to me about his teenage kids and, you know, they were, hot, you know, joyriding in cars and whatever – 
And I just listened and said, man, that must be really tough. And it was kind of, I can imagine for him as a cabbie, he just had this totally anonymous interaction. I didn't know his name. He didn't know my name, but he got to talk about it. And I got to kind of, you know, listen and go, wow, that's that's hard. And that was probably all he needed. He well, needed, not all he needed, no, but, but it was probably of some Well, no, it's really, really important you said that too. I mean, I've been on various national commissions and whatever else, and most of the serious complaints come from family and parents and carers about – and the first thing is no one listened to us. Yeah. The professionals didn't listen to us. No one else listened to us. And I am reluctant to discuss it with other people in the wider world for all the reasons that you said. So, be, you know, like for many of us, but in this situation in particular, genuinely being listened to, being able to share the frustrations, the difficulty, the anxieties, the concerns. It helps. It helps us stack. Yeah. A lot. And then particularly with people who've got similar experiences. Okay, two more questions. Specifically, it's really common for the first time someone gets a mental illness to be wary of the things that are going to help them, i.e. therapy and particularly medication. It's very common, less common than it used to be, but still the first time someone is thinking of having, for example, antidepressants, they're a bit anxious. What is if they say, I don't want to put that stuff in my head because it's gonna it's gonna change who I am, do, do people who live with that person have an important role there? And yeah. and you've been talking about not overemphasizing logic and why and reasons, but then it's important, isn't it? Just to keep hammering that, this is going to make you better. This is going to make you turn you back into who you should be. This is such a <laughs> this is such another good question. Yeah, this is where reassurance. So first you get the reassurance You know, oh, you don't really need you don't really need therapy. You don't really need to take medication because you're a really nice person, <laughs> right? So the person says, I don't really need to take that, and you get reassurance. No, you don't really need to take that, and then that's it. Don't do that. Don't do that. Mm. So you often see that. You know, and also a wish that as a person, and I've seen this a lot, and, and particularly in, in older parents and things, you know, it'll all be good. When you're better, you won't need to take medication anymore. When you're better, you won't need to see the doctor anymore. Sort of a, a false hope, really, but an yeah. idea that it'll all be over in an unrealistic kind of way. Mm. So it do, that you're doesn't help. Just having help. a bad day again. It, yeah, that doesn't help. Yeah. The other side of the coin is then becoming the person who has to be the you know the counterpoint. I don't want to take medication. I don't want to have treatment. I don't want to have a mental illness. And the other person going, yes, you do. You do have an illness. You do have to take the medication. Yeah. <laughs> you know, whatever. And and that sort of then. So you've got to be persistent on that. Well, no, no, but not be conflictual on it. Not be conflictual on it. There's a consistency. So the question is, how do you be empathic about that? Understand the person's frustration. Of course, they don't want to have the problem. But. But not become the, yes, you will. Yes, you must. Oh, I see. These are the, so it's more like these are the reasons why it's a good idea. The evidence suggests. Well, being engaged with it. Well, actually, not even not even taking on the logical counterpoint. Oh, yeah. You hate logic. Yeah. I, I hate logic. <laughs> not even take. No, leave that to me. Right. <laughs> when we get in the doctor's office, we'll right. have the counterpoint thing. Okay. You know, as to what the logic is, mm. as distinct from the the feeling is. Of course, of course, I don't want to do that. Right. But in a sense, so the this is where the sticking with the being with sort of matters. Understanding entirely why you don't want to. Right. But sticking with the underlying thing, what is it that we can collect? What is it that we can do that gives us the biggest chance of getting out of this situation? Yeah. And not getting into conflict over that. And a lot of that is going to mean sticking with treatment. Yeah. Sticking with medication if that's what helps. Sticking with 
therapy if that's what makes a difference, you know. Yeah, that's right. So I think the role often of carers and others at the moment is the kind of sticking with, not getting in an argument any particular day. You're going to take the medication today. If you're taking it today, if you're not taking it today, did you keep the doctor's appointment today? Did you go to the hospital today? Not getting into that kind of, you know, badgering and sort of hypervigilance about it, but sort of sticking with when treatment helps. Mm. This is the longer-term way out of this problem. Okay. So final question. When things get really, really bad, so the test of when you call an ambulance, I think, is when someone's a danger to themselves or others. So that is a, a significant danger of self-harm that can do some some damage or, or, or harming others. So, so short of that, how do you deal with, with erratic behaviour and anger that's ramping up when someone's really distressed? You know, if you think we're not quite at the point to call an ambulance and that's a big step and who knows what happens then, you probably know. Um, you know, what do you do then when things seem to be spinning out of control? Well, I think you've also hit on another important issue, which is what's your role? Yeah. Your role is to be the support person, not to be the health system. Well, the health system's not in your house and they don't know what's happening. So no, you, you are to- the support but the other support system too. So recognising that the problem. So the kind of first aid kind of concept is a really important one here. You can recognise that there's a problem. Hey, sweetheart, there's a problem. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we're going to, you know, this, we're going to probably need to take some action here. Things are not really what they were. You know, things were fine a month ago, but they're not really okay now. Mm. You know, things are actually going You know, what are our options? What are our options? You know, should, yeah. we, should we be in contact with Dr. X? Should we be off to Hospital Y? What's really kind of happening? You know, so to be... To be naming what is going on yep. and be supporting an action yep. without being having moved into the role of being <laughs> those particular things. The person needs you to be the support person they take into the system, not to become the system yourself. Mm. Now this is really hard because there are so many differences in our healthcare system that in truth that in truth families find themselves doing a lot of what healthcare providers probably should be doing. But, but, as much as possible, I'd sort of recommend trying to stay in the support role. Naming what the problem is, naming that there's escalation, naming that there's a difficulty, naming that we are going to need some help. Yeah. And I'm going to stay with you while we go get it. But I'm not the psychologist. I'm not the psychiatrist. I'm not the mental health nurse. I'm the person who loves and cares about you. Yeah. And and so in those extreme cases, and they might just be episodes, I think you're talking more of a Kind of longer term pro- yeah. progression, but where- well, there's an important issue here. Better to act while things are emerging, yeah, than waiting till there's a really big crisis. When there is a crisis, then yes, people have to act. And what do they do? Like, like there's young kids in the house. Things are really escalating. There's going to be some violence. Well, there might be some violence. Do you call triple O? Do you well, try and encourage safety- them to get in the car and go to emergency? Well, all the so actually, raise another interesting, which is having an agreement in advance, right? about what it is reasonable to do. So the idea of advanced care directives is actually a really good one. What would you expect me to do in advance? Now, this is a conversation not to be having at five minutes to midnight. Yeah. Yeah. In advance, if you know the certain certain situations escalate, if you know that certain things kind of happen repeatedly, what do we agree you'd expect me to do? Because I'm going to do it at that point, Mm. right? Yeah. Despite... What you say, and if it's um, myself and the other kids are going to leave the house, is we're going to call an ambulance? Are we going to do particular things? Am I going to contact your doctor mm. in a particular way? You know, what is the agreement that we have? Because I'm going to do it. Yeah, at that particular point, and and have different agreements about that. So, a lot of things have moved in that direction. So much here of 
care planning and planning for crises. People have, mm. people think crises never happen, but guess what? They yeah, do. So the extent do. to which you've got a plan in advance and it's agreed and it's agreed with the healthcare system or agreed with relatives and friends what you're going to do to get out of the situation to keep everybody safe, very important. Yeah. Look, uh, important topic and uh, – Surprising we haven't got to this earlier because it affects so many people. If you've got any questions or comments, want to suggest further topics for us, uh, do send us an email, mindingyourmind2 at gmail.com. That's mindingyourmind2 at gmail.com. And Minding Your Mind is supported by Future Generation Global and the generous philanthropic donations from families who support ongoing research into youth mental health. Further help's available from Headspace. Beyond Blue, Head to Health and Lifeline. You can just Google them or you can call Lifeline on 131114.